The so-called sharing economy is rising from the ashes of traditional corporations. Is that a good thing? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain podcast. Over the past 20 years, the number of companies listed on American stock exchanges has plummeted. What's going on? One answer lies in the emergence of the sharing economy, or gig economy, if you prefer, which provides an antithesis to the old relationship between employer and employee. More and more workers today are opting to sell their services individually to ventures such as Uber, Lyft, and Airbnb. What's the long-term impact, though, on the American economy? Are workers better or worse off under this new way of doing things? Today, I'm speaking with Jerry Davis, professor of management at the University of Michigan's Ross School of Business. His new book is called The Vanishing American Corporation, Navigating the Hazards of a New Economy. The very title gives you a clue as to what he thinks about this development. We're going to talk about the status, security, and satisfaction of today's gig worker and whether the system can provide the same benefits as old-line corporations. Are these semi-self-employed individuals really more empowered than their predecessors? Just what obligation does an employer have to its workers anyway? And is the trend unstoppable? Here's my conversation with Jerry Davis. Professor Jerry Davis, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Bob. Great to be here. Thank you for being with us to talk about The Vanishing American Corporation, Navigating the Hazards of a New Economy, the title of your new book. I'd like to hear what your definition is of what you mean when you say vanishing. What exactly does that mean to you? Yeah, the starting point of the book is that there's been the surprising decline in the number of companies listed on American stock markets. So it's dropped by more than half over the past 20 years. And it's not just the dot-com bust. It's not just the 2008 financial collapse. It's been pretty much continuously declining since uh, 1997. And that seems odd because corporations are so central to the American economy. Something must be up if they keep disappearing from the stock market. So those are really the kinds of corporations that I'm talking about is big corporations, GMs and AT&Ts that are listed on the stock market. Is this a direct result of the growth of the so-called sharing economy, the gig economy, whatever you want to call it? I would say that the gig economy is a part of it, and it's going to maintain this process, but I don't think that that's the major cause of it. If I had to give sort of the one major cause, it's really actually about supply chains for labor and for inputs to the firm. The short version of the story is these days you can rent the components of a firm rather than buy one. You don't need to build a factory. You can rent one or put one to work uh, in China or elsewhere. Uh, Same with gig workers or temp workers. You can rent the labor force. uh, You can rent production 
capacity. So why bother building a firm? And if you don't need to raise the capital uh, to build uh, stores or factories, then you don't really need to be a major corporation. So you're saying the larger trend of, say, outsourcing an entire factory to Asia is now being duplicated in the sense of outsourcing to individuals almost on a, on a person-by-person basis. Do you think that's an extension to the same trend? I do, actually. I think that underlying a lot of this is information and communication technologies. Things like smartphones and the web make it a lot easier to shop around for lower-cost alternatives. So if you're a major corporation in the 1990s and you're saying, why are we still making our own hard drives? Why don't we find someone else to do that? That logic extended to things like assembly and managing the, uh, managing the supply chain itself. Same thing is working for labor now. I think that's the real significance of Uber that people are not getting. It's not really about the cabs. The real significance of Uber is the idea that you can rent people or purchase their labor on a piece rate basis rather than hiring them as employees. Now, I I believe you make the argument in your book that this state of affairs is leading to increased social inequality. Is that the case? And if so, how? Yeah, this one's going to be really uh, a bit counterintuitive. But one of the surprising things is we think big corporations create inequality. If you look at something like General Motors, in fact, I'm looking out at their headquarters right now in Detroit, it's a tall building with someone at the top. It seems like a pyramid-shaped, very unequal situation There's a CEO that makes a lot of money, and then there's layers and layers of management. Then there's the folks at the bottom. So a corporation looks like it's very unequal. But the the surprising thing that we discovered in our research was that large corporate employers actually decrease inequality. This is going to be a little complicated, but if you look at the correlation over time, when more people are employed by giant firms like GM or AT&T or GE or Ford, inequality is lower. The bigger the firms, the lower the inequality. And that's been true year after year in the, uh, in the U.S. So the counterintuitive part is you'd think large firms create inequality, but an economy composed of large firms is actually less unequal. Well, when you say inequality, I mean, on one hand, we hear all the time about CEO salaries and how they outpace typical worker salaries by many times more than they used to. The gap there is clearly widening, which seems to suggest within the corporate world growing inequality. But you seem to be talking about something more than just salaries. What do you mean when you say inequality? Yeah, I'm thinking about salaries and their dispersion across the whole economy. So when economists talk about income inequality, they're saying, what's the spread look like? What's the difference between, say, the 10th percentile and the 90th percentile? And there's ways of measuring that and tracking that over time. And that's the thing that's gone up so much in the last 30 years is that spread of incomes, the difference between the top and the bottom. So within a firm, the CEO certainly makes a a lot more than those at the bottom of a firm. But the thing is that within an organization, there's a limit on just how unequal the compensation can be. And so we think it makes sense to compare the compensation of the CEO to the average worker. We don't think it makes sense to compare the compensation of a hedge fund manager to other people within that same building. Nobody ever makes that comparison. And so if you take a General Motors with 900,000 people working for it and split it up into 100 different companies, those that are doing finance are going to be paid a lot better on Wall Street than they would have working at GM. And the grounds crew is going to be outsourced. So each of those smaller firms, they might be more equal internally 
but the spread among them is going to be much greater. It'll be much lower at the bottom and much higher at the top. And you have to say, CEOs make a lot, but, but it's nothing compared to hedge fund managers. One of my favorite statistics is that in any given year, the top 25 hedge fund managers make more than the top 500 CEOs combined. So that's the real source of extreme inequality. Some of it's executives, but a lot of it's finance. So it sounds like you're not buying the argument that the independent worker in today's economy is an empowered worker with the ability to dictate where he or she works and how many hours he or she works and how much money they make and where they go and how they merge smoothly from one job to another. That doesn't seem to be within your argument. Yeah, definitely not. Certainly not. The the -the run-of-the-mill gig worker is not uh, an empowered individual. Um, If you're working, if you're driving for Uber, you are not making a ton of money. You may be setting your own hours. There's some discretion that you have, but I would not call that an empowered job. What did the traditional corporation give the American worker in the American economy? What was its role in its heyday? Yeah, it not only created goods and services, which are kind of obvious to us, and returns to investors, but it also created a form of economic security and stability. In some sense, the major corporation created the middle class that we're now seeing has largely disappeared. Not only did they employ a lot of people, but they had job security. You could expect to be there for a long time, which is a good thing if you're trying to apply for a mortgage. Uh, And they had job ladders so that people could move up. So you might start at the, in the mailroom, that's a prototypical story, start in the mailroom and work your way up to CEO. If you're working for Uber, you cannot work your way up from driver to coder who's writing the API for Uber. There is no career ladder uh, in the gig economy. So as stability, the creation of long-term employment, and mobility, the ability to move up over time. And that's the thing that's largely vanished. You don't really move up going from one gig job to the next. Now, to the extent that corporations still exist, and I'm sure you wouldn't argue that they, that they don't, it seems like what used to be a corporation, basically an American-based entity, is now a global entity. And I'm wondering how the impact of the globalization of business, uh, what impact that has had on this whole situation. Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of companies that we see as being major employers, uh, major good employers like GE or IBM, they're still pretty big. But most of their workforce is no longer in the U.S. They can collaborate uh, across boundaries. I believe that IBM has more employees in India than the U.S. now. That's great for them. They are a global company, and that's working well for them. But if you think about what it means for the American middle class, uh, that's a bit tricky. The last figures that I looked at found that the S&P 500 made about 50% of their revenues globally rather than within the U.S., So they really are global entities. They're not nearly as tied to the U.S. as they used to be, and that goes for their employment as well. So less loyalty to the American worker, certainly. I'd say that's true. What obligations do you believe that employers should have to their employees other than paying them what would be considered a fair wage and give them a job? Yeah, it's a a great question, Bob, because this is something that These days, people imagine corporations exist to create shareholder value, and it's always been that way. We think that this is like the Rocky Mountains. It's just a feature of the landscape that's always been there. But it has not always been the case. In in 1975, CEOs didn't talk about shareholder value exclusively. They talked about balancing obligations to communities, to workers, to science, to society itself. They felt that they had a broad set of obligations. 
The idea that they now exist surely to create shareholder value. Some people mistakenly believe that that's a legal obligation of the corporation. It's not. That's clearly not the case. A wonderful book I can recommend by Professor Lynn Stout at Cornell University is called The Myth of Shareholder Value. So there was a time during the great post-war boom when corporations believed they had obligations to workers, to science, to their communities. They felt that they were part of this broader community. These days, that's largely been reduced to just shareholder value, by which people typically mean share price. And so we're sort of, we've all bought into this story about shareholder value that isn't really the case legally and doesn't have to be the case in practice. You could imagine corporations taking on much greater responsibilities, and some of them are starting to do that, like by, by becoming certified B corporations. I wonder if we can once again point the finger at hedge funds and the, well, what has now been a a trend for some decades, that of the leverage buyout, the idea that, as you say, shareholder value is number one. For instance, if that means breaking up a company because it's better for the shareholder, you will do that. So has the dominance of the hedge fund helped to bring us to this state of affairs? I would say hedge funds are one big part of it, particularly since the financial crisis. There there have been a set of activist investors that are very vocally pressuring managers to create shareholder value. If you look at recently Dow and DuPont, both are icons of the American economy over a century old. They're merging together and then splitting into three. And that's something that seems conceived by hedge fund managers rather than the corporate CEOs themselves. But it's even broader than that. Most of the American population is invested in the stock market these days. In 1982, maybe one in five households, but now because of 401k plans and people saving for college with mutual funds, most of us are invested in the stock market. And so we are more likely to agree with the idea that corporations exist for shareholder value. We're not just employees. We're not just consumers. We're also investors. So in some sense, we're, we're complicit in this ourselves. I wonder also some of the uh, crazy valuations of tech companies that we've seen in the last uh, 10 or 20 years has also raised the stakes and made it more made companies more obsessed with keeping that market valuation up and, and keeping that their uh, shareholders happy in that regard. Yeah, there's a, there's a really fun comparison to be made of Facebook, which the last time I checked its valuation was about $300 billion. Uh, it has only 12,000 employees, and the last I checked on their revenue from 2014, it was only $12.5 billion. So small in revenues, relatively small in revenues, tiny in employment, huge in market cap. Compare that to Kroger. It's the second biggest employer in the U.S. Uh, they actually have more revenues than, uh, than Amazon, at least as of last year, and their market cap is a fraction of Facebook. So there's really a disconnect between what we think of as a big corporation, a corporation with large market capitalization, and how much revenues they have and how much employment they have. Where are unions in this new economy? Are they even relevant? Yeah, it's a great question. It is hard to see a real comeback of the traditional industrial union, uh, partly because Outside of retail and food service, we don't really have the giant employers that we used to have based within the U.S. So when General Motors or AT&T were giant corporations located uh, with most of their employment within the U.S., you could imagine organizing uh, a union in those settings. It's a lot harder to do that with very high turnover retailers like Walmart, and it's much more difficult to imagine with something like Uber. So I'd say traditional unions like that 
are unlikely to come back. But we might be seeing some more 21st century versions of unions where people band together as Uber drivers. So we're starting to see some flourishing of alternative unions or union-like organizations in the gig economy. So I'm, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about that. One of the ideas that are circulating out there is the notion of creating a new formal certification for the independent worker, in effect allowing that individual to be his or her own W-2-based company, um, the argument being that that would make them more attractive to the employer, at the same time give them a little bit more security and, and give them a little bit more definition vis-a-vis taxation and regulation. What do you think about that? Yeah, that makes me very anxious. Uh, In fact, there are already industries like construction where to avoid some of the legal obligations that come with being an employer, uh, individual employees set up as LLCs or limited liability companies largely so that their employer, their effective employer, can evade the legal responsibilities that come with being an employer. So that makes me very worried, the idea of every individual being their own corporation or being their own LLC. Most of us are just not equipped to do that. We're not good at doing our taxes as if we're single proprietors of a business. So I can see why employers would want to do that. I'm wary about that from the perspective of labor. Do you see a positive side to the sharing economy in any regard? So I do. I think that we think that the problem in the economy is jobs, and it is currently. But what we really want to do is fulfill human needs and give people economic security. So the idea of a job with an employer, that made perfect sense in the 20th century. We would like a world where people had more flexibility, where they could change industries if they wanted uh, where they weren't tied to one particular employee, uh, one particular employer, but we'd also like people to have some kind of economic security. So if we can find some alternative institution that gives people security, uh, regular income, access to health insurance, if you could give people those things, then you know the gig economy could be great. The problem is that if your health insurance is tied to your employer, If you break your leg and you can't drive for Uber for a couple of weeks, you don't get paid. And I don't think that's the kind of world that we want to live in. We want people to have some basic economic security, some ability to plan for the future, the ability to get a mortgage. If we can find an alternative way to make that compatible with the gig economy, then I'm fine with that. We are seeing some interesting trends that may hint at a reversal of some of the things that are going on. I'm referring specifically to reshoring back to the Western Hemisphere of manufacturing and also community challenges to companies like Uber and Airbnb. What does the future look like to you? Do you think we're just going to keep going in this direction? There is a possibility we could pull back a little bit. What's it going to look like in our economy in the years to come? Yeah, so I think that it's really going to be politics and not just economics that determines where we go in the future. So think back a little over a century to the rise of the large corporation in the early 20th century. They were clearly more efficient. Mass production made cars a lot cheaper. It made steel cheaper. Mass production and giant corporations were the way to go. But if you look at Teddy Roosevelt and other progressives, their concern was these giant corporations are economically great, but politically they're a bit scary. They give too much power to the people that control them. So we want corporations to be big and efficient, but we need to tame them so that they serve human needs. And that's where a lot of the policies came in 
during the early part of the 20th century was to try to tame these corporations so that they would serve human interests. Uh, Roosevelt said, it's fine for people to make a fortune as long as they do it in a way that serves the community. You don't want people to get rich for the wrong things. So fast forward to today, what would it look like to create something like that? What would the politics look like to tame the gig economy? I think in the absence of a political response, we might see a world of sort of the 1% being made very well off, writing apps and retiring before age 30 by selling them to Facebook, but the vast majority of the population working in relatively precarious jobs. So that's one possible future. Great convenience and the ability to have apps and sort of gig workers doing all kinds of labor for you if you've got the money to pay them. But a very precarious economy overall. So that's what will happen in the absence of some kind of policy response. If we try to ask how do we use the technologies that we have now to serve human ends, then we might end up in a pretty different place. If we found a way to provide maybe a basic income for people, universal access to health care, then we could see a more flourishing situation where people didn't have to work the same crazy hours, where they could take time off in their careers, where they wouldn't have to work 40 hours every week to be able to make ends meet. So you could imagine creating a very sort of optimistic scenario where instead of saying, oh no, we've lost all of these jobs, we could be saying, yay, people work 15 hours a week and get to spend more time with their kids, more time working on their hobbies, things like that. All right, you've painted us two scenarios of the future. Which one do you think is more likely to occur? Uh, well, we have an election coming up. <laughs> I think <laughs> that, that could point us in a couple of different directions. But I think we're seeing more and more a movement among people under 30 that they want to seize that sort of higher ground, that they want to work at jobs that have meaning, they want employers that are more attentive to human needs. I think there's going to be more of a political movement that tries to tame the gig economy. And it's probably going to start at the city level that it's going to be neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city, that we see interesting experiments that try to make the gig economy work for us. The book is The Vanishing American Corporation, Navigating the Hazards of a New Economy. We will link to that in our show notes. Professor Jerry Davis, uh, Professor of Management, University of Michigan's Ross School of Business, thank you so much for being with us today to talk about this important subject. Oh, thanks for having me on, Bob. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Professor Jerry Davis talking about the vanishing American corporation and the rise of the gig economy. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.